welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. I'm your host, Stella Bales. For any new listeners who don't know what to expect, in each episode, I interview an expert on an emerging area of public relations. I get to the facts, but I leave out the jargon. It's a podcast about marketing, but it's in plain language. Welcome back to all of my regular listeners too. If any of you have any comments or questions, just tweet me at Stella Bales. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and on iTunes, whatever you listen on at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Donna, thank you so much for joining me on the Resolution Podcast. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I have a real interest in knowing more about the work that you do with tech businesses. How many years have you been helping to launch tech businesses? I've had my PR agency, LMGPR, which stands for Leadership, Momentum and Growth for 20 years. We celebrated 20 years in the pandemic. Prior to that, I was with a number of Silicon Valley-based technology companies and consumer services and enterprise services. And before that, I was a news reporter. So 20 plus years. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that journey, but the the businesses you're working with right now, because I can imagine that it's changed in the tech space over the last 20 years. I'm sure we'll hear more about that. But your clients right now, are you looking at looking after consumer tech, you know, products that we might know, or is it more SaaS businesses? What what space of tech do do you work with? I like to kind of categorize it in this as emerging tech, meaning the hottest and coolest technologies that maybe aren't adopted by consumers yet that are in the process of of being adopted or in beta format within enterprises. And that encompasses everything from smart devices to to, to autonomous and artificial intelligence to robotics. And yes, we've had these categories for a while, but they all take different transformations over time. So for example, crime-fighting robots. That's a new category. Autonomous tractors, a new category. So lots of really cool things that are happening that can impact us as consumers, but are ultimately designed more for the enterprise. Those two categories you just said, I can imagine that you couldn't have ever thought that you'd be working in those kind of categories 20 years ago. (laughs) How has it grown and changed in, in the 20 years that you've been working in tech? Yeah, my first client was a, was a storage company, followed by that, a, a plethora of, of cybersecurity companies. We know when the, after the dot-com bubble, the vulnerabilities became more abundant in, in security space for e-commerce, right? So we went from everything being offline to everything online, and that increased vulnerabilities. And, and that obviously bubbled up a whole new sector of cybersecurity prevention and protection type companies. So at one point... I think I had 10 security companies on my roster, which was a lot. But at the time, they weren't competing with each other because they all were addressing things at a very different granular asset. So some were doing key encryption. Others were doing vulnerability protection at the domain name. And so all kinds of different approaches. But eventually, it became a little bit like the old Pac-Man game. That company started merging. And in some cases, I had clients that got acquired. And then I continued to work with them only to be acquired by another client. And so I kind of had the candy store of who's who in the security space. And one of the companies I'm probably most proud of is a company called FireEye, which is still to this day in existence and was recently acquired by another behemoth company. So that market, you know, but really saturated. And I'm very, I'm, I'm very inquisitive and I'm very forward thinking and thinking, okay, so where is the security going? 
And so the security components start going into other aspects of the enterprise. So data center security, physical security, as well as personal security, things that would protect you and I, our own personal mobile devices, as well as perhaps our car. So different layers of security and that experience transition very quickly into the consumer world, as well as, as other enterprises. Mm. You said that you were a journalist before you went into PR. What, were you a tech journalist? Did you literally just go on to the other side of the table or were you looking at different types of stories? Well, I might be honest, you're going to laugh. I started my journalism reporting career when I was under 10. My, my father and his uncle, and my uncles owned a, a whole series of community papers. So they weren't like national or regional papers, but within the Silicon Valley, which is Santa Clara County, all the way up to just south of San Francisco, there were community papers that serviced your, your you know, your say your township, so to speak, right? And, and so we own those papers and I would go out and report with my uncles on anything from, it could be, you know, the, the, the new airport expansion to a runaway bear at the San Francisco zoo. I mean, things like that. Right. And so it wasn't like, you know, heartbreaking news or international news, but I learned about news reporting and I love to write. So I was writing and contributing to the newspapers. And by the time I got into high school, my journalism chops were already there and I knew what I wanted to do. And then I went off to university and I studied business and economics and, and English was, you know, was a, and communications was a, a second major. I needed to have a topic subject matter to write about. And so when I came out of college, I was a business and economics reporter, meaning that I would cover publicly traded companies, companies that were on the, the, the NASDAQ and in fortune 500 companies. So at a very young age, I was talking to CEOs and C-suite executives at publicly traded companies. And some of that included tech, included retail, included, you know, consumer packaged goods, pretty, a pretty big array of things. Tech came to me much later after I worked for Reuters International and then Reuters International took me on a tour of duty from New York, Chicago, and then into London. And then once I was in London, I actually ended up transferring and working for the BBC. So then I became the Yank correspondent and looking at perspective of businesses, which also included some technology from stateside. So, so that migration was all within a period of like eight years. And when I came back to the United States to get my master's degree in journalism, that's when the tech sector became relevant. I did everything I could to get out of the Valley and then everything else was bringing me back to the Valley. Yeah. So when was that? Was that around the, the boom? What kind of time was that? I hit it just right. It was just when the boom was taking off and there was a need for content, you know, people who could write. We still people, you know, it's hard to find. You, you can find decent writers. You can find, you know, good writers, but to go from good to great is really hard. And one of the things that I've always been able to distill is the making of a great story. I've been able to look for the relevancy, look for the, you know, really being curious and tenacious that I, at a very young age, that I carried into journalism and being able to talk about the company, not based on a product per se, but based on the impact and the consciousness and the meaning, you know, meaning behind a product, right? Mm. So if you look at something, I was fortunate to work on iPod and I, I, you know, the whole kind of like 
going from Napster to solid, you know, solidifying, you know, the, the music generation going from, which I love going from some CDs now to digital music. So the digital wave was happening. And so I was smack in the middle of that and it was moving so fast. I don't think you realize that you're in the middle of it, but you're just part of it. Right. And be able to see how that transition went from being offline to the internet, you know, which is internet super highway. And it was just called all these different things and nobody knew what it really was. It's no different than we look at blockchain now or we looked mm. at cloud. And so we get, we have a tendency to, you know, we say fashion can be trendy. I think tech and innovation can also be somewhat trendy, but ultimately over time, all these trends become standards. And so that was exciting to me is to be part of the big dot-com frontier that led to the on-ramp of all the brands and e-commerce, you know, brands, you know, made that transition and to be part of that and then the security layer that went on top of that, which was, okay, now we created this stuff, how are we going to secure it, right? And then the next layer was, okay, so now we're going to put it into the cloud. And now we're going into another frontier, which is in the blockchain, which is, oh, how do we actually protect the musician and the creators? And now, you know, these, these, these creator economies creating NFTs becomes another legacy part of this discussion mm. so everything kind of becomes a little you know daisy chain if like you imagine when you're a kid and you put daisies string them together to yeah. me that's what the tech sector and industry and that's what keeps yeah. us exciting for me so around that time when you were writing and it was just the the start and in the middle of the of the boom the dot-com boom i guess that you were writing a lot about startups tech startups so when did you make the move of writing about them to then working with them and, and, and doing communications on behalf of some of these organizations? Well, you know, it's interesting because they're the Silicon Valley specifically, which is kind of an elastized fantasy, you know, border, right? The, the, the roots of the Silicon Valley are what was originally called the land of heart's delight, which is in San Jose, California, which is beautiful agriculture. And that's where a lot of the defense companies and the early stage companies like HP were established, were in the basin of the valley, right? And that, and then all the, I want to call it the entrepreneurship, heavy influence from Stanford University, from UC Berkeley, and then droves of people coming into the valley just because it, it has a lot of magical, you know, powers in terms of people coming together and collaborating. And all that was happening. And I don't think I ultimately realized it until one day I was at, I was at a conference and there were, there was 50 companies presenting one after another. And I'm, and I was with one of those companies and I said, then I listened, you know, to these different pitches and I thought, do I need that? Do I want that? Why do we need that? And I kept questioning, you know, the different, the, the things that were being presented to me as a, as a journalist, right? And, and so I went there to cover a story, but I, what I ended up leaving with was not a story about a company. I left with during the story about a movement and a generation and how entrepreneurship, you know, was something that has always been in the Valley, but now there was this new magnitude and the, at a global foot, you know, footprint, there was literally like a tribe being formed and created, and it was very generational and it was very youthful. And it didn't have a lot of boundaries. It was fluid and money was literally, I mean, people were, were writing blank, blank checks. Companies could get funded very quickly. You could come from Kansas City or you could come from 
Kilimanjaro and you might be able to land a job within 24 hours because there was so much demand and need for people with talent. And it was that was very interesting to see. I got wooed from being a news reporter by a company that I actually had reported on. And at first I thought, why would I give up my dignity of being a news reporter? Then I found out that they had a company magazine. And so they were reporting for their particular industry. And the rest of the staff and people that were on the magazine were also former reporters. And oh, by the way, it paid paid threefold what I was making as a news reporter, which meant that I could actually affordably live in the Valley, which was at that point beginning to ramp up in its cost as well. Mm, I can imagine. So when was that? When you you went from journalism to PR? Was that when you started your business? So that was the early 90s. 2001, I decided to make a decision to leave the corporate world after then I think I did six IPOs at that point. And, and I, I basically had, I had a lot of influx and contacts within the venture capital community. So every two years against my father's dismay, I was going with a different tech company and because you could, so I'd go in and I would do launch a company, work 80, 90 hour work weeks, launch a company, get their funding and take them out through their IPO. And I did it over and over and over again. So for me, five IPOs back to back in a a six-year period, that's a lot of hours. And my my father is the type of person who had the same position, same job for 40 years, right? Different generation. And so I realized that there was something else I wanted to do in my life, which was be a mother. So I started an adoption journey. And that was my other infant startups. I was working with startup companies. And then I decided I was going to merge them together. So I literally started my business like a lot of people have done this last couple of years, but started it on my kitchen table. And that was in preparation for, you're going to laugh, balance. There's no such thing as balance. So, it, you know, agility, yes, but not balance. And so I, I adopted my kids at the time. They were two and a half and four from Russia. So they came to the United States with, you know, somewhat of a, you know, they were toddlers, right? And 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 preschool definitely with language and with thoughts and with a different language and a lot of adjustments. And so the same time I was starting my business, six months later, I have, I'm a mother and now faced with a whole set of new challenges, which is wow. How am I going to do all this? <laughs> be honest with you. I don't know any different because I was always launching a company. And to me, it was like, oh, and I, and the great thing is at that point, my business, I had a, a pod of women, fantastic women that were also stay at home working moms that were decided to leave the dot-com bubble to start families or their jobs were redundant. And I was able to hire them part-time. And so my joke was LMGPR stand for loving mothers, good PR, <laughs> even though it's leadership, momentum and growth. And during that time, my business took off within the first six months that I thought that I would just be, you know, working a couple of clients. We ended up having a dozen clients. Wow. So it just it just shows that the the mothers really can be agile and, and do it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think there's. Uh, the, I think men are catching uh, on to this this last year and a half or two years when they've been working at home. 
is this hybrid work environment does allow people to maybe have clearer thoughts and be more productive and to be more agile. Mm. And the dads, to be honest, were never given the opportunity, I think, to really do that. It, it was a tough choice for a man to, to stay home and be the, the house dad, right? And I think what I've seen this past couple of years is great is both men and women are now socially accepted and doing so and working hybrid. There've been so many calls and I'm sure you've had them too as guests is where you have the kids in the background and you have the dog or cat in the background and, and, and it's become, you know, it's, it's a different vibe. It's a really different vibe. My biggest concern is, and it's getting people back to work. And Mm. so my own agency, we're operating in a hybrid schedule, Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the office, Tuesday, Thursday, flex days, you can work wherever you want. You can work at the beach. You can work at the mall. You can work in your backyard. Do we have client meetings and activities and, and video? Yes. But you can work wherever you feel most comfortable. Mm. A lot of agents, uh, agencies that I'm speaking to have found that that is working so far. So far, so good. That kind of hybrid model. Wow. What a story. I have so many things I want to ask you about that journey. But I do want to go back to the five IPOs that you mentioned and, and that period of time of working with venture capitalists, because it's that yeah, that kind of strategy of launching and and then taking them very, very focused, hardcore projects that you were working on is quite different to some of the other sectors of PR that I know that would listen to this podcast and that I work with. And would love, I'd love to just get an insight of what that looks like. You know, I know that's yeah. probably quite different for different private businesses, but you know, when you start to work with a venture capitalist, first of all, what what's that relationship like? What does what does PR do for for that journey, and and how long does it take to then take go to a, to IPO? It's just very very fascinating. If you can talk us through an example, it would be yeah. amazing. You know, I've worked for with publicly traded companies, yeah. and when I was a short between corporate and forming our own agency, I did work for a global agency, one of the biggest, and and I really enjoyed learning the structure and kind of the discipline. But one of the things that made me a little nervous was that the process in which things could get proved was a little bit of a glacier being a public traded, working in public traded business, right? Taking a company from its infancy and acting as if you're a fortune 500 company is a different mindset. So when you want to go, you know, in this zero to 60 mode, there's like a six month process prior to a launch. I've actually launched companies in 10 days, which I don't recommend. And that <laughs> means you need to have the, the, the brand, the, any sort of market data or focus group data or analytical data, the validation, the beta customers, influ- influencers, if there's a social component and all the media that, you know, that I'm going to call it the, the tier one media, or, or, or I like to say my nifty 50 or my dirty dozen, my dirty dozen are the core 12 that I would identify, which upfront are the must have engagement conversations. And then you kind of expand that out to like maybe another core 50. So imagine launching a company in, in 10 days from start to finish. And I did that a few years ago with an electric motorcycle company called Damon Motors. And it was wildly successful. We launched at CES 2020. And I think what really made that work was very focus and be able to focus and know steadfast that we had a strike date. We had, we couldn't really think 
it's almost like a motorcycle ride where you'll hop on a motorcycle, you put your helmet on and you go. And so you wouldn't really think about like worst case scenario. We thought about best case scenario. Like what are we, you know, what is this launch going to mean? And it meant changing the mindset and changing conversations about safety in motorcycles and particularly an EV motorcycle. When I've worked with, with publicly traded companies, that same launch I did in 10 days probably take 10 months for like a software upgrade or hardware upgrade because there's a, a lot more scrutiny and a lot more compliance and, and legal things that need to be you know, followed in the check boxes, you know, kick. but it's the same template. It's just not as accelerated. Mm. So, so looking at the brand and looking at the, the marketplace and the competitiveness and the influencers and a little bit more time looking at best and worst case scenarios. I, I've always liked the factor in the predictiveness of what could happen next, right? So product failure, a, a user experience debacle, working in the robotic space. You know, one of the things that I learned particularly with consumer robots is things could go wrong. So you have to control your demonstrations and you have to be a little more con controlled environment settings. So curiosity discovery with the founders or the creators is exactly the same. Being able to create a narrative that actually is relevant and engaging and very specific is the same thing. And then the media process is the same thing, but it's accelerated faster. So instead of getting, when I work for publicly traded companies, I would say I come out of the gate with six to, you know, six to eight very marquee stories. But if I want a cover story, it's three to four months in advance, right? And so there's a lot more discipline in that, in that, in that scenario. When it's been a startup or an early stage company, oftentimes that's all compressed in less than 90 days. And so that's the biggest difference it's, it's the same skill set and the same tools. It's just the, you know, are you going to be in a cruising down the, you know, the highway at speed limit, or are you going to be on the Audubon or maybe it's even the Hyperloop? Mm. And with that kind of, okay, so it's two questions. Who's, who's setting the brief there? Because you've, you've mentioned working with venture capitalists. Are, are they briefing you? Are they your client? Are you working, but you also said working with the founder as well. Is it a merge brief? Who, yeah, who gets in touch initially? Yeah, 100% of my business is really referral based, just based on reputation and you know, PR reputation matters, right? And so I've been called everything from the PR she-devil in the past by venture capitalists, meaning that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an angel really, but, but in this in sense of being able to very craftily bring things to market very, very, very quickly in a template. But oftentimes it's a venture capitalist or it's a venture capitalist referring a, a founder to me. I, my priority is working with companies that are funded. I will work with early stage companies that have some form of angel funding but idyllically, they need to be, you know, venture funded because they're going to be a longer term engagement in a client, right? Which is really important in the agency world. In the room sometimes is the investor as well as maybe the, the head of engineering. And, and I've worked with companies where there's two people and a dog in the room. I've worked with companies where there's been 16 advisors and, and technology influences in the room. So it's, it's never exactly the same, yeah. but the process is the same. 
This podcast is brought to you by CoverageBook, the tool that creates beautifully designed reports with credible metrics you can be proud of. Head to coveragebook.com for your free trial. You said that you normally work with organisations that have funding already. Is there ever an objective to try and establish a business or have a perceived perception of a business to try and get more funding or is it really just to launch launch the product or does it differ <laughs> it, it varies sometimes it's just a new version of a product that's been out for a year or they t- they had a year worth of beta other times it's a whole new company and product altogether. this last year i i brought the first of its kind autonomous tractor to market the first of its kind Humor health product that basically helps zap all the crud that we're exposed to and the pathogens and, and germs that are related to the, you know, to COVID and other viruses, very mm. timely product. Right. But none of these, none of these products are exactly the same, but they're very cause driven in a sense of sustainability, mm deep, you know, artificial intelligence to gather information to data to help us work better or to help medical professionals and essential workers work smarter. Transportation that actually is greener and, and cleaner and cleaner. Alternative transportation, agricultural platforms that are actually changing and impacting the way we, ag- we farm which impacts the way you and I eat, right? Mm -hmm. So sustainability, artificial intelligence, IoT, and I would say, you know, robotics have all kind of converged. Think of it like I'm a pilot and I love to fly, but one of the things that I love about flying in a traditional small plane, like a a Beechcraft Bonanza or Cessna or Piper is in the cockpit, I'm in charge of all the steam dials and controls, right? And in the digital world, a lot of those dials are becoming very automated and they don't look like steam dials. I love the old fashioned steam dials. And you need to be attuned to your environment, right? So situationally aware of the marketplace and and as in comparison, right? So what is the weather? What is my environment? What are any of my obstacles today? Where am I going? How am I going to get there? What's my route going to be? All the things that I need to plan for a destination, whether it's 50 miles or 500 miles, is very similar to public relations, right? And so and, and when you fly, you have your, your pre-check, you have your run-up before you get permission to take off. And then you actually have your takeoff. And throughout the entire flight, you're adjusting and, and refining things as you fly. That's very similar to, I think, what we do as PR practitioners is that we're constantly refining and we're constantly tuning in and being very situationally aware and often have to be the person that reminds the client of being situationally aware because it's not one and done when you bring a company or product to market. Mm. There could be the market could change. The, the economic climate could change, which is a lot of rumblings right now. We're going to go through a recession and people are talking about it, but I'm seeing companies being funded. So I go, I don't know when companies are being funded. I think that's a really favorable sign. So it's, it's, there's a lot of similarities, I think, into flying and PR and the things that we as pilots need to do in helping navigate and help our clients to be successful in business. Because at the end of the day, they want two things, media 
and they want media that's going to impact and move cells. And if we can do those things and build a great relationships, then I think we're doing our job. Mm. So you said that they want they want media and then want sales. You've also talked about having top tier media involved at launch being really important. Do you do you find that? having the different stakeholders so you might have working with venture companies you also work with founders different stakeholders do you have to flex the way that you report back for some of these different stakeholders and if so can you give any examples yeah measurement is is always the thing or no pr it's not a science right and but the data and the metrics is so important so we use a, a number of tools and we use not just measuring the quantity but the quality and the tonality and you know, the reach is important, but there's a lot of great tools that we kind of converge together. But I think the most important thing that you can give your client is showing, and particularly the C-suite, when you can actually show that a particular article, and I give an example, I launched a company and the first three articles were New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Bloomberg. Mm. Pretty big out of the gate. And this was a company that was pre-funded. And they were in the process of getting funding, but I knew it was a great story and it was a robotic story. Each one of those articles led to an actual PO crossing over to the sales desk. So I could immediately validate that public relations was effective and impactful. I worked with a security company early on. How that- did you know that, by the way? How did you and, and how did you prove prove that? So when, when they were doing their, their, their sales, it was a direct sales model and they, they got inbound calls from the article saying, I read your article in the wall street journal. I want to know more about what you're doing. Great. Yeah. So it was very direct. And oftentimes I'll work with the sales. If a company is a little bigger and they had to have head of sales and, and, and chief growth officer, we will factor in, you know, within those sales call discussions, like, what did you hear about the company? Was it on the web? Was it on the, you know, in the world? Was it an actual article? So what article? And sometimes people don't always remember, but in, in this case, it was very distinct. Another scenario, a co- I had a company that I was working with and they were not getting their funding and they were kind of li- their last 90 days of, I don't want to say survival mode, but they were near that, right? And they, they were desperately needed some magic. So we went on a media tour, which was really focusing on some original content. Original content is really important. Research content in this case was in security and showing vulnerabilities and, and not just enterprise environments, but the small to medium businesses that were kind of disparate, which was becoming the, the norm as companies, you know, employees and started working out in, in regional offices. And so we took that on the road and the articles that the first article that, that actually came out in that scenario, you know, was at CNN, which was, a, you know, broadcast TV. And then we had a USA Today piece, which is very kind of consumer hotel-esque, you know, and then we had the Washington Post, which was very policy-driven publication. It needed to be seen by, by, by business decision makers of Fortune, you know, thousand companies, they needed to be understood that consumers were all vulnerable, hotel hacking and, and things that were happening at airports and, and hotel vulnerabilities to get the consumer awareness. And then the third piece was more of the on-street business. 
a purchase order for $250,000 came through the day that the three of those hit. Wow. Which not only meant that the lights could stay on, but also meant that the investment in PR for the past year and a half that I've been working with them had totally been recouped. Yeah. And so to get a call from a CFO to say, thank you for helping me validate <laughs> because, you know, marketing and PR are often hard. And I, I think that's one of the, the things that as practitioners that PR makes people either feel really great or feel really bad. And mm. we've, we've all heard, oh, there's no such thing as bad PR. Well, I think there is. If your stock evaluation goes down or your company evaluation in general goes down, your reputation goes down, you're going to have to move pretty quickly to rectify that. But, you know, the goal is to, you know, is to move the dial in a positive direction. But sometimes we don't always have control over that. And we need to be, my favorite word, agile mm. and being able to move, you know, move quickly to rectify or, or kind of align things. Yeah, absolutely. I think I always get asked because the listeners will know I'm, very involved in PR measurement, whether it's part of innovation groups or conferences. And there's always the, the same question of how should we measure? What's the silver bullet? And you just mentioned in there that the, the CFO gave you a call to let you know about that. I just feel like the building relationships across the business is the silver bullet because it's, there is no set way. But to, to have that kind of insight with the, the right people across a business is the way that you see whether impact is happening and how you can prove it, right? It just feels like that's how it was been working for you. Yeah, also just the cross-pollination within organizations with the company when I like to get to know not just the CEO and the, you know, the, I like to get to know the CTO and the head of engineering and the, and the chief growth officer. I mean, oftentimes we're working either directly with the CEO and the founders, early stage companies, this company's a little bigger. We work with the head of marketing, the CMO or, and, but knowing what the other operationals and groups are doing and then knowing how sales, what, what tools the sales need, right? You, you talked about having that connection with different areas of the business and, and, and different people, the CFO, CTO. Um, and obviously, I could just imagine the kind of insight you get from those relationships to, to feed into stories. But equally for them. Do you get to hear how PR benefits their role and does it does it really vary for those different different people in those different roles? Yeah, I think sometimes people misunderstand the role of public relations that there's public affairs, right, which is working for more public influence and things like are happening in the media right now, anything that's you know kind of going to say movement generation, whether it's about educating people on zero, reducing the carbon footprint or health or wellness and, you know, those types of things. I I sometimes wander in, into that dialogue a bit, depending on the product, but for the most part, you know, do corporate and product PR and in the mix, sometimes there's just a really a rock star of a person, visionaries, which is, Kind of why I started my podcast before it happened, because I kept meeting with people that have the most amazing stories, but they weren't quite ready to work with me or they they really weren't intended to work with me at all. But I had just met them at a conference or through a referral and they just happened to be quite knowledgeable. And I kept making a very long list 
And I could go, wow, these people have such amazing stories. I wonder who I can introduce them to or how I could help them. And no two stories, you know, were alike. So that's ultimately what I decided to do was to, to create a podcast. And in that podcast, you know, which is a narrative, narrative documentary style podcast, it's an entrepreneurial and visionary and, and futurist, you know, discussion, but it's still really about the narration and, and creating a narrative that's authentic and, and relevant and genuine. And I just think people are interesting in general and yeah. that everyone has a story. It's abstracting and creating that story that's going to kind of stand out on its own. Do you focus on the, it's before it happens is the name of the podcast. So do you focus on people when they had that creative moment, when they had the idea? Is that, is, is that the, the premise of the podcast, the interview? Yeah, it's really that what we call the aha moment or that pivot, right? It has many different names, but what really inspired and if what I find, the reason why I, I went down this journey was oftentimes I find in, in this morning, I re- received a, probably 50 answers to 50 questions. And there's a lot of questions that I sent to somebody that, for, I, you know, that's in the, in the electric car space that I, I want to work with and very well thought out, but I had a lot of questions. And one of the things that, you know, that they shared with me was the, the, rel- the, the their history of like, that's so what, who cares? And I stood back at it and I thought, oh, that sounds like 12 other companies that I've read about, right? How do I, how would I make this different? How would I make this, you know, stand out and be a little sassy and maybe really be, you know, the, the rebel in the mix and not the safety, you know, me too, you know, same, you know, same, same automobile, different color and different wheels, right? So it comes down to the experience and being able to understand, like, why did this person go on this journey to begin with? Was there a moment when they were a child or, you know, was it with their first car experience or were they at an auto show? Like, what was that trigger that really made them say, I'm going to revolutionize yet again, this transportation thing or this robot? So looking at the crime fighting robots, there was this horrible incident and they continued to happen at a school, a school shooting in Sandy Hook. And that inspired the CEO to leave, you know, a legacy of career in an automotive industry and then a startup in between to start yet yeah, his third company mm-hmm. and or second company. And what, like, why would somebody do that? It takes a lot of moxie. And I know this because I did it myself. It takes a lot of moxie to leave a very established and safe position or in in, within the company and to say, you know what, I'm going to put everything on the table. I'm going to like downsize from a dog to a cat. I'm going to mortgage my house. I'm going to sell my car. I'm going to call my family members. I'm going to, Oh, by the way, I got to quit my job in order to do this. That takes a lot. And so I want to know what, what, what was that intention? Yeah. And, 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 and I get into some really interesting things. You know, I have a former aerospace engineer that, you know, decided that he didn't, you know, he didn't in an Italian and, you know, Italians love their food and they're not vegetarians typically, but he became a vegetarian. And then he says, well, how can I actually change the industry? 
And so he set out, you know, to create a plant-based cheese. How do you go from aerospace to plant-based cheese creatively? Right. It's so extreme. Or you go from research, you know, in, you know, animal research lab on, and then you come out on the other side going, well, this isn't exactly what I expected when I was working on my graduate degree yeah. and working with, with the animals in the lab. It's not quite as friendly as I thought. So now I'm going to be a crusader for animal rights and safety. Right. So, yeah. you, you, so these decisions that are being made, I, I think are very much, you know, if you look at somebody like Elon Musk, who's not been on my show, and his story has been told so many times. But I recently saw a documentary on, on Netflix and him and on space. And I don't know the exact name of the title, but it was fascinating. What was fascinating was just, just the whoever was the, the producer and the editor for this nailed it. But there is one scene that that basically sum, summarized, in my opinion, his purpose and 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 saying, yes, we can versus no, we can't. Mm. And I that and and that was that he was watching his first mission, successful mission, because he had a lot of failures. And he was watching his first successful mission. And you can see on his face almost this very whimsical, childlike, just amazement and wilderment and like a sigh of like, wow. And that's what I'm looking for in these conversations. Mm. And when people went back to their roots and I sometimes I said, I don't want to see the spreadsheet. I don't want to see the doc sheet. I don't want to see, you know, all the scientific data and everything. I want to know why did you set out to solve this problem to begin with? Mm. What is the problem? How, what were your approaches? What were your failures and why are you still at it? And one of my early guests was so, was so amazing are you familiar with the Pong game? That was this very, yeah, yeah. you know, ding, ding, ding. The creator of Pong, and that was back in the in the in the eighties. And that whole creating, you know, this he 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 launched an entire industry. He was he was not his intent wasn't to launch an entire industry of of gaming. His intent was to actually see and get things to work. And it was a little bit of a happy accident that actually became, you know, shaped an entire industry. But what I loved about his his story, and his name is Al Alcorn, was in his early, he had a lot of failures and attempts. He had a very young Steve Jobs coming to work with him at Atari. And, and, and did, you know, he was the early, you know, pre-Steve Jobs, pre-Apple. In fact, he thought Apple would fail miserably. I mean, those are a little bit of folkloric, you know, kind of interactions there. But what I loved about that discussion was anything's possible, but it's really zooming in and understanding when these visionaries imagine the future. Hmm. Why do they imagine? Yeah. And and why do they, the conviction and believing so much. And when I see that, I go, oh, I want to work with you or I really want to tell your story. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And it's so true. Like even just thinking about Gary, the founder of Coverage Book, who I know very well, I was working with him at the agency before he started Coverage Book. I know the moment <laughs> that it happened and, and that and that problem solved. Why did they want to solve that problem? It's, yeah, it's a fascinating story. I can't wait to dig into more of your episodes before it happens, especially the crime fighting robots. That feels like a, a real, yeah, a real powerful story and change for good yeah 
definitely going to dig that episode out. Donna, I could carry on talking to you for, for hours and I can totally see why you've got your amazing reputation of such a good storyteller because you do dig into, into those amazing insights uh, to get the, the true story, which I know a lot of our listeners can learn from in, in all sorts of storytelling with, with, with PR, no matter what sector they're in. Where can people find your, your podcast before it happens? So we before it happened show on instagram before it happened on look for the red look for the logo with the with the rock that we are on apple spotify google all all the major platforms youtube i think and you can find me as donna laughlin and that's l-o-u-g-h-l-i-n on linkedin i love meeting people on linkedin so join me there if you're you want to network and talk about you know pr and, and 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 creating stories and and I'm always looking for international partners. Sometimes I launch companies in, in smaller footprints in, around the world. And so finding, you know, like-minded people who have success within other markets, you know, I welcome those dialogues as well. Perfect. Connect, connect away, listeners. Okay, Donna, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a fascinating chat. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day. That was the PR Resolution podcast. If you want to learn more about emerging areas of PR, join the PR Resolution and head to blog.coveragebook.com. Stay in touch by following me on Twitter at Stella Bales and make sure you subscribe to the series to get the next episode.